This is the Honest CEO Show, hosted by the Honest CEO, Caroline Kennedy. Get ready to be informed, inspired, and motivated by the honest stories from passionate, extraordinary business people who share their ups and downs and their learnings on the journey to building success in business. Welcome, everyone, and thanks for listening in, particularly to our regular listeners. I really do appreciate it. Today, my guest is Lorraine Wood. She is the co-founder and owner of South Pacific Private. Australia's leading addiction and mental health centre and is also the author of Love and Addict, a personal memoir of her inspirational life. From New Zealand farmer to a successful Australian business owner, Lorraine has certainly had an interesting life full of incredible highs and lows with the highlight being her hospital. South Pacific Private was founded 22 years ago by Bill and Lorraine Wood to offer Australia's treatment for mental health and addiction, which was unparalleled in Australia at the time. Bill had undergone treatment for alcoholism at the Meadows in the US and was so inspired by the program, both he and Lorraine founded the hospital in Australia so others could benefit from the treatment program they experienced. Their vision to open the hospital was not a straightforward journey and they were challenged a lot and those challenges seemed unsurmountable. At times, Lorraine and Bill struggled to keep the business afloat, even having to sell their own home to keep the vision alive. Since the South Pacific Private has treated over 7,000 people and this legacy is due to the passion and commitment of two people who took a personal journey to overcome the difficulties of alcoholism and wanted to provide the same service for the Australian public at a time when it simply didn't exist. Sadly, in 2000, Bill passed away and yet in the midst of grief and loss, Lorraine decided to continue to run the business as her passion for saving lives and healing families burnt as strongly as ever. Over 20 years later and now in her late 70s, Lorraine is still a familiar face in the corridors and the patients find inspiration in her story. She still regularly lectures and sometimes still holds group therapies or meetings. Her story unites us all and from it stems the family culture that prevails in the hospital. Now, I decided to interview Lorraine because for me, her story really touched me and the fact that she really wanted to have an impact in helping families out there in Australia I suppose there was no facility available to them. And I personally have been touched and grew up in a um, alcohol abusive environment. So I know how it can affect families and I know the devastation that it could do. So it's great to actually hear Lorraine's story of inspiration, but also about how she built her business and how she kept that passion alive uh, and even through the times where she was struggling to keep the business afloat and having to sell the home and Lorraine and I talk about the key elements to a successful business and particularly to having the right people on the bus which is so important. 
Welcome to the show, Lorraine. It's an absolute pleasure to have you um, share your stories with our listeners. Thank you, Caroline. I'm looking forward to talking with you. Yeah. Now, Lorraine, tell us about yourself and your childhood. Well, I, I was the eldest child of six children, and both my parents were alcoholics and had substance abuse issues. They um, were funny, very intelligent, good-looking, and they won lottery, or the first prize in tax, in 1935, which in today's money would be something like $7 million. Wow. And they set off, and they had the world at their feet. But because of their codependency and their addiction issue, that was their high, po- high point, and it was just a downward trail their whole life from, from then on, with my mother dying just last year, where she'd lost everything, even her mind. Oh, no, I'm sorry to hear that. Yes, it's very addiction. Is, if, if you have addiction, there's no, unless you get into recovery, there's only three outcomes, and it's death, insanity, or jail. Yeah. And although my mum didn't go to jail, she was in a nursing home, and I'm sure it felt like jail to her. Yeah, absolutely. And as a result of what you'd experienced throughout life, you started the South Pacific Private Hospital. So tell us about that. Well, typically in my second marriage, I married a recovering alcoholic, and I knew nothing about addiction until he started telling me. And, you know, I had one of those aha moments when he said he was an alcoholic in recovery. And I thought, oh, my goodness, my mother and father are alcoholics. So Bill and I started off our life together and he was doing regular meetings at at Al-Anon at AA. and, And life was really great. But later on, he stopped doing meetings and then he ended up becoming dry drunk. And the dry drunk syndrome is a horrible place to be. It's um, a malaise of the spirit where he, the physical allergy has gone, but the mental obsession and, and the spiritual part of the disease lives on. There's a saying in AA that I went to AA for my drinking, but I stayed for my thinking. And their thinking gets very distorted and he got angry and it was, it was horrible. And I thought it was all my fault because I didn't have good self-esteem and I was love-addicted to Bill. And so after a series of um, of what I call miracles, I suppose, we ended up in treatment at the Meadows in Arizona. And that was then and is today one of the leading treatment centres in the world. And it had such a profound and life-changing effect on both of us and on our family that after I completed treatment, I, we decided that we'd start up a little outpatient program in Australia. However, when you suggest that and your husband's an entrepreneur, the next thing I found myself with a hospital. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, neither of us had any idea what we were into. All we had was our business experience in real estate. And um, we had had a very successful real estate company. And... um, and, and we started off, and I thought, well, I'll bring those therapists out from America, and, you, you know, people will flock to us. It's a wonderful program, and they'll manage it. But, of course, it's not like that in business. If you're going to open a business, sometimes you've got to be able to do every part of it yourself, especially if people walk out. You've got to be able to, you know, just take over. Absolutely. You've got to be able to wear all the hats that it involves. <laughs> So we opened in 1993, about 24 years ago now, and um, 
it was very hard because we were 20 years ahead of anything in Australia, and we still are. There's no other treatment centre that does the work we're doing here mm. in Australia. And um, it took a long time to be accepted, but we are now, and in fact, we're one of the leading, or we are the leading real estate company, and we do a lot of training for doctors and psychiatrists, and we take students from Sydney University, final year students at South Pacific, and nursing students. So it's, it's, it gives me a great deal of satisfaction to see how far we've come and how many people are getting well. Yeah, you should be very proud of that. Thank you. And I also want to go back to your point you made a little bit earlier, which I found found quite fascinating, the fact that you didn't realise or you didn't correlate that your family, your parents had an addiction until you met Bill. So you weren't aware of it whilst growing up. Is that correct? No, no idea. I knew they drank too much, but I just thought everybody did because yeah. all their friends were drinkers. Because, you know, addicts stay with addicts, that's for sure. Yeah, that's, and, it, that's um, very true. Yeah, and, and I, you know, in 1970 or 71 when I met Bill, addiction was very new. new. I mean, AA only opened up in 1935, so it wasn't that far before that. And in the 50s was when Al-Anon started, Al-Anon for the families and friends of alcoholics. Yeah. So, you know, and it wasn't until in the 70s that we found out about the phenomenon called Adult Children of Alcoholics, which is another story in itself. So it's, it's very interesting, but it's typical that I wouldn't have understood it. Well, no, no, I suppose not. And the only reason I ask that is really because, I'd, as I mentioned before to you, I grew up with an alcoholic mother who was severely alcoholic. And whilst I was a young child, I probably couldn't comprehend it. I could comprehend the fact that she wasn't present mentally, I think, but it certainly was evident to me. And perhaps it was adults who told me that she was an alcoholic. I'm not quite sure, but I'm not sure how I came to know that she was suffering from a disease apart from just watching her a lot of the time. And my mother would get up and um, drink alcohol from the moment that she woke up and she used to put vodka in her tea so nobody could smell that she was <laughs> drinking alcohol. And I remember that she used to, my dad used to go looking for the alcohol and she'd hide it like in the vacuum cleaner when we used to have those upright vacuum cleaners and behind toilets and everywhere she would hide this alcohol and and that's my memory and of course as you know it is a very destructive disease as well it it just doesn't affect the individual that has the disease it has a flow-on effect to the family and I think you talk about getting the families healthy and your treatment is not just focused on the actual person with the addiction but actually helping the broader family as well. So tell us about that, Lorraine. Definitely. It's about the um, changing the family legacy from one of sickness and, and dysfunction to one of, of honesty and where we can thrive rather than just surviving. And that's why family program at South Pacific is the most important part of the program because the person coming in for treatment Everybody thinks they're the problem, if they're the addict or the depressed or anxiety, whatever, but it's not. They're acting out something that's happening in the family. It's like they're saying, hey, you know, there's a problem in our family here, and the rest of the family are looking at them and pointing the fingers and saying, no, no, our family's fine. You're the problem. We're fine. So when they come in for the family program, we give them education around family systems therapy, which is 
is fascinating. And in my book, Love and Addiction, I, I talk about the, the roles that we all play out. And they're just classic. In fact, this morning I did a lecture with the clients about it. And three people came up to me after the lecture and they said, you've just described my family exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's very predictable and it's curable. I mean, it, well, it's curable and possible to change the legacy, but addiction isn't, isn't curable. Addiction is a life-threatening illness that can't be cured. We can only arrest it. Yeah, yeah. And do you do that through acknowledging it, I suppose, do you, Lorraine? Yeah, it is, and it's through um, a whole series of things. You know, the first three steps in AA is to start to believe, to have faith and to hand over and to learn to trust. And that's when clients, they're only there for about three weeks, and when they come to us, you know, they've lost their spirituality, they're, they're bankrupt spiritually, they have dead eyes, and they feel hopeless. And within a week, you can see them starting to change because it's a therapeutic community and they they affirm each other, they um, support each other, and they start to grow. And they, especially when they realise that they're not the problem, it's the system, and that you know they have a, they're not bad people, they have a bad disease, and it's not their fault. But the one thing we're always responsible for is our behaviour. So if you can't guarantee your behaviour, you've got to stop whatever it is. And when they start to realise all this, the shameless and hope comes back. And when they stand up at graduation, it's just wonderful to see them with sparkling eyes and confidence again. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, what you've just described and particularly around the acknowledging it and then going and seeking help, and, you know, the fact that it is a disease and whilst it might not necessarily be their fault, you can control the behaviour and take responsibility as well for the, absolutely. the broader yes, effect absolutely. that it actually has too. Yep. Yeah. There's lots of people in jail who have killed people in car accidents, in blackouts, you know, absolutely um, can't remember a thing about it. And you see they obviously were drinking or drugging and could no longer be responsible for their own behaviour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tragic cases at times. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Now, the shame of what people have experienced um, in being exposed to addiction can have a huge impact on a person. Now, what is your advice in dealing with this, in the shame side yeah. of it? Yeah, well, you're, you're very right because... If parents are medicating their emotions and not dealing with them, the children have to carry those feelings. They're called carried feelings. So, we, you know, and you know they're carried when you are overwhelmed by them. Healthy shame is normal, makes us blush, wants, makes us want to make amends. But this um, carried shame within the family makes you want to die. You know, you, it immobilizes you. It's very different. It's toxic. Yeah. So if, if you feel shame is a problem, a great way of dealing with it is through therapy or going to 12-step programs and starting to talk about what happens because families are as sick as their secrets and there's a lot of shame in different families over different areas and a lot of energy goes into protecting the secrets and keeping it all down. There was a secret in our family which was about my parents winning the money because they went through it very quickly. 
and the younger children were born after it was all gone. And one of my younger brothers, he was 54 before he somehow found out about it, and he was furious. But we'd all enabled our parents and covered up for them because of their shame. Yeah, yeah. And I think... So the way, the way, the way out of shame is to talk about it in a safe place. And every time you talk about it, your spirit thinks, oh, thank God. (laughs) And you let a little bit more of that energy out and a little bit more. Yeah. And I think the key to that is initially the safe place is because, you know. Exactly. You hear a lot about, um, you know, just in, in the world in general about being authentic and sharing your story and allowing that to have an impact on, um, other people, which is exactly what you're doing, Lorraine. But it, it wouldn't have started there, you know, you would have had... Oh, no, no. And it's very important when you are new to this and you start sharing your story that you do it in a safe place because if you do it, people sometimes can't handle it and they'll ridicule you or, or say, oh, come on, get on with it. We've all had that. And you don't need to... Be, you need to be validated, not put down. Yeah. So it's really important to, and you know, I, I'm a great believer in therapy. I still do therapy every couple of weeks. I still need it after all this time. And um, the treatment's one of the best ways to do therapy because it, going to three weeks treatment is like doing three years of weekly therapy. So it really cuts you through your stuff very quickly. Yeah, yeah. So I remember a couple of years ago, you know, sharing my story broadly with friends and family. And at one point, somebody mentioned to a friend of mine, you know, when they're talking, I never, I never told anybody that her mother was an alcoholic. And what I found interesting with that was they associated the shame of my mother being an alcoholic, whereas I had let that go so many years ago and it didn't actually bother me, but it was really interesting to see somebody else think that there was shame associated with that. And I think there's a lot of that out there, isn't there? Look, everybody has somebody in her own family that does that. I mean, even the Queen family, there's people they don't want to talk That's about. That's true. Much, they, <laughs> they have, you know, it's not fussy. Addiction's not fussy about which family it, it goes to. It goes to all spectrums of the social thing. Yeah. Now, there are a lot of people who suffer from anxiety or depression at some point in life. And many people, as we talked about before, do feel ashamed about being depressed because there is a, well, there is a bit of a stigma at times still associated with experiencing depression, yet it's such a commonplace uh, experience for people now. So what's your advice for people who are suffering from depression but are they scared to seek help or speak up? Right. Well, by 2020, depression will be the most diagnosed illness in the Western world. That's, that's astonishing. Wow. It? So that's, that's, that's substantiated by tests and um, research. So but thank goodness people are talking about it now and they're not as ashamed as what they were even, say, 10 years ago. But the first thing to do is to seek help. And you see, it doesn't matter very much whether it's addiction, depression, anxiety or whatever. There's three different types of addiction as well. So it's all a maladaptive way of dealing with your emotions. If you're depressed, you've been pushing down stuff from the past. And so there's a lot of anger underneath it all. If you're anxious, it's about worrying about the future. But as a species, 
we're so smart and so clever that we pick the one behavior that medicates our pain. And addiction travels in families, but sometimes it skips a generation, like it did with me. And when it skips a generation, our issues are anxiety, depression, perfectionism, control, and enabling. And those were my issues. But I thought I was better then because I wasn't an addict, so to speak. And it took me a long time to realize that you know, I needed treatment. In fact, my family did an intervention on me to get me to go into the treatment. <laughs> I was furious. How dare they? You know, I didn't drink. And um, anyway, I went into <clears throat> treatment kicking and screaming. But, you know, thank goodness they loved me enough to risk my anger. And I went in there. And when I went down the next day, my first day in treatment, and I heard the therapist sharing their stories, my shame lifted every time. And that's why I share my story with the clients because they're shameless. So I say to them, you know, I was where you are. And if I can come out and be, you know, leading a successful life today, so can you. So um, does that answer your question? It does. And I think um, good on you for sharing your story with your clients so that it enables them to feel safe too. I think that that's really important. But you have to, you can't do it in the early days. You know, you need privacy. And you need support until, because in the beginning, you're filled with doubt and with fear and shame and all these things. And you need privacy. That's why at the hospital, people have to sign to say that they will keep their anonymity and that they will not disclose what they hear in group for the rest of their lives. And it's a very sacred vow that they take. Yeah. So that people feel safe. Yeah. So, um, but then, you know, after, I don't know, maybe a year or a couple, I remember the first time. Bill told me he went to an AA meeting. He parked a mile away so that nobody would see his car. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, towards the end of his life, he didn't care who knew. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's a big journey to take as well, isn't it? My word it yeah. is. That's the first, most important journey you'll ever take is to take a step into a therapist's office. Yeah, yeah. Especially if you need that help. And um... Well, I think most of us do. Oh. You know, I mean, I... I don't have major problems these days, but I'm living alone. I don't have a partner here to talk things with. And who's better than a therapist to run everything past and to have a dispassionate view of where I am in my life? Yeah. And I think the other thing is that they're objective, whereas sometimes when you talk to your partner, yes. they're not as objective. And, and you, you there could be things that you want to talk to them about, about the relationship, and they tend to take that the wrong way. So... When, Personally, yeah. yeah, yeah, they do, and and sometimes you've got to be careful with friends because they all have their own agenda. So you need, and I think you need a professional, someone who's done their own work and can listen to you. Yeah, and they can lead you in the right direction, which is ultimately right. where you want to go, and, and make progress. That's right, but it's really important that you get a therapist or a psychiatrist who's done their own work, because if you get someone who's done all the learning but they haven't done their own personal work. And if you bring something up, subconsciously they will cut you off if they haven't done their own work because it's too painful for them to look at. That's interesting. And how do you seek somebody like that? How do you know that they've well, done their own work? Well, you, you, you can always ring South Pacific. We're very good at recommending people. But if you know people, what you can do is um, ask them their own history. Have they done their own therapy? Um, have they done family of origin issues? 
And if they say no, well, then I'd go to somebody else. Yeah, okay, that's interesting. And what can people do whilst we're on the topic of depression on a daily basis to help overcome that? Well, a good thing to do is to start a journal and start writing at the same time every day and sometimes just keep writing the first words that come up and just keep on and on and on. And you might write two or three pages and then suddenly something will come up and you'll think, goodness, where did that come from? So writing how you're feeling, trying to get to the bottom of it and asking questions, you know, why am I not happy today? What What's going on for me? What upset me yesterday? Who have I got resentment against? That's a great one because we often feel a bit, um, we withhold from people and we don't go further. And why am I withholding from that person? And if you start asking questions and with depression, it's always about anger, always about anger. So writing down, what am I angry about? And getting, getting it all out. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. And do you practice meditation or anything like that? Is that something that you have brought into your life? I think it's vital. Um, And having a belief, a spiritual belief in something and some power that's greater than yourself in the universe. It's just the universe has my good at heart. And if I hand things over, good things will come to me. Just something simple. But when clients come in, treatment they've been trying to control everything in their life and especially their drug of choice and when they come in we take that drug off them so they're often left with a gaping hole because their addiction or behavior was their higher power their whole life revolved around it so when they come in we try and help them find something else and a lot of them have had spiritual abuse which means they were forced to go to church all the time or their parents were very rigid around religion and they don't they don't like religion and they don't trust it so they they've got to come up with something else but in fact the opposite is it, it doesn't have to be a god it, it doesn't have to be you know somebody on high that's going to say yes you're good or no you're bad just something that gives you solace serenity and peace and it can be just walking along the beach it can be the power of a group, being in a group and feeling the bonding that happens in a therapy group. And straight away, they, it takes the relief, relief. It gives them relief because they think, oh, you know, keep it simple. It doesn't have to be complicated. And and they, sometimes it's very important to get religion and spirituality separated. Like yeah. religion is, is where there's a church, um, there's a hierarchy, there's rules and they're man-made rules, and they're things that we have to do, and there's a place for them. You know, they do a lot of good as well as some not so good. But spirituality is about a direct connection between yourself and some power that's greater than you, whatever you want it to be. And it it works. I know for me, I was brought up in the Catholic Church, and and I was full of fear, and I thought I was going to go to hell, and oh my goodness, I used to eat meat on Fridays and all sorts of things. Whereas today, I have a a direct um, connection with a God of my understanding. I have no idea what he is, but it doesn't really matter. But I just know if I ask for help and hand my life over on a daily basis, 
things improve. But, you know, I still like the church. I still go to church, but I take what I want and leave the rest. Yeah, yeah. And I think probably similar to you, I grew up in Ireland and, you know, they're, they're very heavy into church. And, yeah. And, and it, that can be quite overwhelming, especially for a child, because you're right about oh, going to hell and absolutely. all that stuff. And I remember being scared when I first he- heard about it. So, and I totally agree that spirituality and the church side of things, religion, are very separate. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And if you can get that different and get without the guilt and the fear, you've got spirituality. And, and I say to the clients, you don't have to get it. You just have to want it and ask for help, and it's there. Yeah. And um, so, you know, so they talk about miracles happening at the hospital, and there's a sign in the front, and it says, um, expect a miracle. And on the back, as they go out, it says, you are a miracle. Yeah. And the clients love that. They get it. Yeah. <laughs> I was watching a video of you speaking, and I heard you say that, and I thought that was quite special, actually. Um, now let's go down the business side of things for a little while and tell us about the top three challenges you faced in building your business and how did you overcome them right well the first thing was not knowing what we were doing we got a business we got pat and tia melody out from the meadows and they helped tremendously and they sort of explained a lot to me and helped me get confidence so I needed the confidence. I think one thing to remember when you're starting a business, it's very daunting. And I think about 50% of businesses go broke in the first few years. So it's scary. And you often take a partner in because you're scared to do it on your own. And Bill and I certainly did that. We gave some therapists a a share of it. And sometimes partnerships work out, but rarely. Mm. And um, it didn't work out and it cost us because we had to buy them out in the end. So I I think, and it caused a lot of grief along the way. So I think, you know, take a bite the bullet and go for it. Get advice, but stand on your own if you possibly can. We were undercapitalized. We had another business that was putting a lot of money into it, which we were lucky because you've got to have cash flow. So I, I think that... On your own, that's one of the most important things. Secondly, I think um, we, knowing your area and getting ex, expert advice, we were so far ahead of anything here in Australia. And getting acceptance, one of the things, we couldn't get clients. So being a real estate agent, I thought, well, we'll advertise. So I put an ad in the paper and, and it worked but it went against all the rules and regulations for private hospitals and it came up before Parliament. And I I could have been summoned. Goodness knows what could have happened. But fortunately, the rule was changed. So, you know, you need to know what you're doing, I think, a bit more than what we did. Not knowing these things cost us a lot. Yeah. I'm a, a lot of money. I'm a big fan of always saying, and personally for myself through anything, if I want to go and emulate somebody's success, if I see somebody that's done something that I want to do, then I go and talk to the person and get advice from them. We're reasonably possible, obviously, but generally people are willing to open and share their experiences with you as well. And so why make all the mistakes that other people have already made when you can learn from their mistakes and be able to Look, harness no, that? No, you're right. Yeah. 
you're, you're so right. Most people are proud of what they've done and they're happy to share and to mentor. And so always be upfront and honest and, and go and say, look, I'd like to do this. I'm going to copy you. How do you feel about it? <clears throat> Would you be prepared to support me? And nine out of ten times, people will do that. Pat and Pia Melody did that for us, and they never charged us a penny apart from their airfares. So, um, you know, we were very lucky. But I think another point that's very important to remember, when Bill died, there was a big debt owing. And I think that's when you've got to really gather all your resources around you, keep calm and don't panic. Um, I kind of knew it was there, but I also didn't want to know it was there. So I got people to come and help me and I listened to them. But then again, you've got to listen to people, but then you're the one that makes the decision yeah. because you don't always know people's agenda. Yeah. You know, even your children can be advising you, but they want you to retire and just be a mom and not have any worries because they love you. So you've got to trust your own gut. And it took me a few years, but I just listened to everybody and then made my own decisions. And I traded my way out of the debt. It took me about four or five years. I had a very good CEO at the time who was an accountant. And she used to get, because I'm hopeless with figures, I'm dyslexic with figures. And um, she would just pay off bits and pieces at a time. And graduate, I think it took nearly eight years, actually, before we were really debt-free. Well, congratulations on being tenacious and, and achieving that. And also, I think I completely agree with you. Whilst you do get advice from other people, you ultimately make the decision and it is based on your instinct. And follow your instinct because it's natural for you. You know what's right. If you're following your passion and you make a decision, the universe conspires to assist you, whether it's good or bad. But and it's, when you're doing following your passion, you're doing work where time stands still. You know, even for me today, when I go into the hospital and I'm doing a lecture, say, I never think, oh, God, how long is it till morning tea? The time just stands still and the next thing it's time to come home. And I think you've got to be like that about your job. Yeah. And it's important to do what, what you are passionate about or being in an environment that aligns with your your or your values and, and what drives you as well. Because if there's a exactly. if there's a mismatch there, your life can become miserable and then it has a flow on effect to everything else and particularly your family. Well that's another piece of, of business wisdom that I have learned. If you have a business put people I think who was it, Gail Kelly is it yes. from Westpac or somewhere said put people off the bus. Yeah that don't support yep. you. And that is so true. I, it cost me a lot by not doing that enough in the early days because I was a people pleaser and I would want everybody to love me and da da da. Now I'm much more upfront and you know, say what I want. And if I know someone's not supporting me, I'd rather make them redundant. And in fact, I guess I spent nearly half a million dollars at one stage on redundancy. And it was the best thing I ever did because sometimes you get people there that have got tired, it's not their passion, and, and they're not what you want. And you need to have the best people in the field if you want to be successful. That's my thoughts anyway. No, I completely agree with you. And a lot of people can stay within a, one organisation and become complacent. And negative. Yes. And you only need one Toxic. negative person and they can, br they can bring a company down. I yeah, think. it has a flow-on effect to everybody. 
Absolutely it agree. Does. Yes, and it's yes, one of yes. the biggest mistakes that I see a lot of businesses make is hanging on to people that they know are not effective or not aligned to the business or passionate about the business and are toxic, but they just don't know how to deal well, with it. No, well, it's interesting you say that because during the war, so Winston Churchill was so um, worried about people being negative, that if you were caught being negative, you were charged. And I can't believe that this is true, but I did read that they were shot. I can't believe that would happen. But that's how serious that they thought about it. And it's just as serious in your business. The minute you get on to anyone being negative or what they can do, they can, you can have managers that come to meetings and everybody's excited about something and they'll say, oh, but what about this? What and and they chip away and they bring everybody down and then in the end you wipe it because you just want to shut them up. Yeah. So you know that's real sabotage. Yeah. And you need to. In fact, there was a paper that came out about it. And during the Second World War, agents that were in disguise were told to go into meetings and do that to sabotage businesses. And it happens a lot in businesses. And all our management meetings are really bright and happy and fun and and um, effective. But I can remember over the years sitting at meetings and feeling despair at the attitude of some people and thinking it was my fault and I just because I wasn't making the meeting interesting enough. Oh, and attitude is everything, I believe, in life, in business. Oh, it yeah. makes the difference. It does. And, you know, like I've got a psychiatric hospital and so sometimes – you know, the wrong people are drawn there. So you've got to be very careful who you are employed. Um, that's one of the most important things. And all our managers take a long time selecting people. They don't just make quick decisions. Yeah. I've always believed in employing based on the right cultural fit, first and foremost, and the right attitude Absolutely. as opposed to yep. skill and experience. And then you've got the first six months to check them out and we have meetings regularly, especially with senior people in those first six months, because you can tell. I think you can usually, you get a gut feeling within a week if someone's starting. Yeah. But you, you, need, you need to really follow it up and be very sure before you bring somebody on permanently. If you've got a doubt, just a little niggling doubt, get rid of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because there's plenty of people out there. And the thing is, we're all busy and, oh, my God, do I have to interview people again? But you do. That's the most important thing in your job. Yeah. Well, if you, I've always believed in a business, the people make a business, and I'm talking about the people being the team and also the customers um, because without those two, you don't have a business. So be people-centric, lead people to success, do your best to, get, you know, help people become successful and that also means that if you don't have the right people on the bus, as we you said before, then get them off because you need to have the right people on the bus to deliver to your customers. Well, Richard Branson says that. Your customers aren't the most important people. Your staff are. And if your staff are handled well, they'll handle the clients. And that's so yep, true. Yeah, very true. And I've seen it over and over again in business and then I've also witnessed businesses that don't have that thought process and there's just chaos there, doesn't yes. it? Anyway, now finally, what does the future look like for you, Lorraine? Big question. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting. My family and I are just making lots of plans for next year. 
I've got two daughters living in New York. You know, this is, I'm in my nearly eight, I'm 18 months away from 80. And this is my golden years. You know, I've got to get out and have fun and enjoy my family. I've got two little grandchildren of four and six in New York, and I adore them. So I want to spend time with them and do fun things with them. So it's getting my life in balance, family and fun, friends. I've got my daughters coming up in the business, and she's part of my succession plan. My daughter, Frances. And so I can get away from work more now and I just do the things that really inspire and motivate me Mm. and I'm looking around for another partner too I've been widowed now for 16 years I think it's about time I started getting a partner don't you absolutely (laughs) (laughs) I'm not working so hard now so I'm open to that possibility oh good well you put it out there and I'm sure it'll come your way I hope you're right. <laughs> and I just wanted to say, like, it's really inspiring to, you know, you, as you said, you're nearly 18 months away from turning 80 and yet you're so passionate. You've got a spring in your step and you're just powering through. And I love that. So congratulations and congratulations on everything that you've achieved and overcome because life is challenging, but you've just got to rise to the occasion. You do, Caroline. Thank you for that. It's not always easy. And when you've been in a marriage and you're used to having a partner, it's hard being on your own. But, you know, you've just got to ride with the punches. Everybody has their ups and downs. And family's an important part. And I think getting the balance, I didn't always get the balance right. And now I'm trying to to get that balance in life. Yeah, good. Well, it was a pleasure chatting with you. And thank you so much for your time. And I will link in so people can check out a Treatment Centre and also your book and they can have a look at all the fabulous things that you're doing. All right. Thanks very much, Caroline. It's been an honour to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Honest CEO Show with Caroline Kennedy. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe on iTunes for your weekly dose on all things business. We've also made it easy for you by linking the subscribe to button on the virtual executive website. Caroline shares free business tools and resources there too. And if you're stuck and need some advice, book a free 30-minute session with Caroline or one of her team. Go to www.virtualexecutive.com.au and check it out.